Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a topic that goblins have some personal experience with, music. Um, we also want to take a look at how music can be a device for storytelling. Um, and we have a, a wonderful guest today. Uh, I'm going to go into introductions, and since I'm talking, I'm just going to get my intro out of the way real quick. Um, I'm Alex Newman, found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler, and our uh, opening question for today having to do with music is, What's the best concert you've seen and, and what made it special? So for me, um, I actually have not seen too many bands um, in concert, but I, I did go and see Rush um, several times, four or five times. Um, but uh, I'm going to say Rush 40, which was their 40th anniversary. And it was this, it was their last tour as well. And that, that was a big thing that made it special. But also um, I had, oh, there was, there was like, there was eight of us there best friend and, and his wife my dad came with us there was a big group and uh, we were all in our seats and unfortunately i misunderstood how the seating in uh, the tar um, the excel energy center in st paul worked so we were in two different sections and it was just kind of i felt really disappointed in myself for messing that up but then my dad who has bad knees was sitting out side for a little bit before the concert started and someone and then he came kind of came up and said hey alex uh someone just came by and gave me eight tickets for the this floor section, not floor section, but it was the first row. It was a section down on the bottom, and it was really much, much closer to the, the stage than we were. And apparently, they just had a bunch of tickets. And so thanks to my dad's bad knees, we wow. all were able to see the show in a much better place all together. So I was able to flag over everybody, and we all went down there. And it, uh, it was a really excellent show. So I'll pass that on. Uh, to you guys to answer that question and intro yourself. Oh, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. Hobbs, you want to take it and then let so our guest I, I, take over the show? Yeah, I was going to let our guest go um, because I, I'm really, really excited for today's guest. So I guess I'll, I'll go first because uh, it's it's actually, yeah, um, this is somebody we should have had on the show for a long time. And it, I am so glad that it worked out just the way that it did um and it's somebody that i love talking music with and i actually came up with this burning inquiry question specifically because of having this guest and really wanting to kind of put the screws to him because i know how much live music he has seen um so for me uh I, I, this was a this was even a tough question for myself to answer because uh, i do i do like music i have definitely seen my fair share of live shows um I couldn't, I, I was trying to pick a specific instance because I've seen um, They Might Be Giants so many times. Um, I'm going to choose the one, uh, the, what made it special, and I, I don't know best being relative here in some ways, but um, Jen had never really grew up with going to concerts. Like, that's the same thing, kind of as Alex was saying, she just, it just, it wasn't something that she really had done. And actually, she had basically never been to a a music show outside of i think some like christian rock bands she had said until they might be giants and then on top of that it was at first avenue um and after i moved to minneapolis i had been wanting to go see a show at first avenue so the club made famous by purple rain and by prince and just it also was just like the place to play in minneapolis also, and to to i'm sorry to to no. cut in but uh first avenue also showed up prominently in war for the oaks by emma bull which was arguably one of the first um urban fantasy novels written. oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah so she it, uh actually similar to you hobbs was a, is a california transplant to minneapolis and fell in love with the city and so she kind of wrote this book about 
like a fairy war going on in Minneapolis. That's amazing. So yeah, so it's, it is a very famous club. Um, it is a place that a lot of people get started at, but also then big names come and play more intimate shows. Um, there's if you ever go down to see it, if you're ever in Minneapolis, the outside wall is just these giant stars with the names of people that have played there, um, it, which was just beautiful to see. It was just a fantastic show. They always put on a great live show. I've seen them, I, I mean, upwards of 15 times and they just their shows are just amazing live. They are a fun live band. But this was just special because it really got Jen, uh, I think, even into their music a little bit more. And now um Birdhouse in Your Soul is actually a song that like Gwen requests specifically for bedtime, which is kind of cool. Um, and yeah, and this is Hobbs, uh, Hobbs Q on Twitter. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm going to throw it over to Eric, uh, Eric Linden, who we've been wanting to have on forever. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on the cast. Uh, this is yeah, Eric Linden, uh, Yavi, Yavamai Eric on Twitter. And um First Ave is definitely a great place to see a show. I've been there a, a few times since I've been in Minneapolis. We're coming up on a decade now. Red Rocks uh, in Colorado <laughs> is also uh, a great place to see a show. And it's probably the thing that I miss most about uh, living out in Colorado. Yeah. And... I, I actually was anticipating Red Rocks coming up. <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's somewhere that I've always wanted to see a show. And it's like the one thing I most want to do when sort of quarantine COVID times uh, are are over is to see another show at Red Rocks. Um, and I've seen all kinds of people out there. I've seen Dylan and Bjork and Lumineers and Smashing Pumpkins and Weezer. And um, I, w- I went to Bonnaroo one year where Beck was one of the headliners and Tom Petty was one of the headliners. Um that's so what I mean, it, like you've seen <laughs> everybody, but I mean, you've also seen, I mean, there's just, you just like music. I mean, from discussions you and I've had, we, so the other day I wanted to say that what's funny is th- this was not intended, but I put out that question of even just best opener to get people thinking about before I even knew we were going to be having you on. Um, and that was just because like I had been on a run one day and I was thinking about these opportunities to see the great opening acts. And that's why I knew that you were going to have, like, I really was hoping this question was going to be difficult for you. And uh, this question, um, because of that, uh, because of that question about best opener, you know, and this question here is what makes it special for you to, my real answer to this question is um, my, my first date with my wife, um, she was from Minnesota and actually living out in Colorado. And we saw a Minnesota band called tapes and tapes and they're, they're really, really excellent. And their opener for that show was a, a band called Dale Earnhardt jr. Jr. <laughs> and really great show, uh, real fun stuff. And they closed with a version of God only knows, which kind of broke out into this uh, noise jam rock stuff. And I have not been able to find a version of it online. Oh, um, like from the, a live show or something from a live show. Oh, like, that would I, be, there, there's yeah. versions, but they're nowhere as good as like, you know, that kind of thing. And then the real fun part of that is years later, uh, Dale Earnhardt jr. Jr. Uh, renamed themselves as junior jr. And uh, they were playing here in Minneapolis and, their opener was Hippocampus, which is a really big Minneapolis band that kind of broke through about three months after that. So I got to be like, I, you know, <laughs> I saw them right before they broke. And uh, I've met um, 
I met their trumpet player. They record at a recording studio not too far from my place. So it's a the whole circle of life. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, best being kind of that thing, I think you hit a little bit with that idea of the, to me, live music. Um, some of these experiences, whether it be covers or just things that you, you the experience of being there and being part of that is, is sometimes to me, that's what I love about live music in particular. Um, you know, I, uh, I saw Bell and Sebastian at the Hollywood bowl in LA and at that time, one of the the people who was either managing or producing was the uh, former frontman for the Buggles, and so during their like encore, they did video killed the radio star, and he came out and put on like the big oversized glasses from like the first video on MTV, and it was just like this experience that you get live that sometimes you may not get just by listening to music. A, a really great band that does that, I think, in every city they go to is the Foo Fighters. Um, they bring out someone who's kind of famous in that city to play a big hit. And uh, I saw them play in Chicago at Wrigley Field. That was a pretty special show, too. So I've, <laughs> I've been spoiled with the shows that I've, get, I've, I've got to see. I'm just like sitting here saying like just how long like I mean, I just or just thinking about the fact that like this could just be in some ways a, an episode on just that. <laughs> like I, I and this was this is why that conversation spurred so much of what we're going to talk about today, because I think that. Music is so powerful. Um, I, in the middle of the question I was posting online, I actually texted my my uncle who, who was like lived in Southern California during the eighties, and he saw Oingo Boingo Madness open for the Police. Mm. And I'm just like thinking of like shows like this that just it just the amount of good music you can get, and the opener question I think is fantastic for that. But we're here today to just talk about well, how does how does music look in Magic the Gathering? Um, what role does it kind of play so far? And we have an interesting element to this because we have the concept and fantasy of the bard. So I was hoping, Eric, that you might be able to kick us off here with kind of talking about bards in general and kind of what that has looked like in Magic. Sure. So um, Hobbes was uh, pitching this uh, concept for the show and we were talking about story and music and, and bard seemed like a natural kind of place. And uh, you'd also mentioned that um, we're coming up on an, on a D and D world, a true D and D world and magic. So kind of got me thinking about, well, how are bards represented in, in fantasy and D and D. So, um, you know, a bard in D and D is kind of like a jack of all trades and can be like a con artist or it can be like a healer. Um, could be kind of like this charming rogue kind of character or, or a battle leader. And because it's such a versatile archetype, it might be one of the reasons why there are not a ton of bards that show up in magic. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, charisma is really a key ability. I've done just a tiny bit of uh, role-playing actually uh, with um, your former, former co-host, uh, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so he kind of got me into the hobby and um, it was a, it was a great DM and was doing some podcasts and stuff with that, of course, too. Um, and that was what's kind of scared me off from playing a bard like character is like, <laughs> you have to be the one who speaks and you have to be so like <laughs> sort of yeah. witty all the time in the face of the party. Um, but I'm drawn to the archetype. Yeah. What I think is interesting about that is that um, so 
as we've talked about uh, at the VA right now, we're running a D&D group um, mm. and we're on our fourth iteration, I think, of this group or our fourth campaign. And we are just now finally getting our first person willing to play a bard because I think part of it is we're doing a group on social anxiety. <laughs> yeah. And and speaking as someone who has social anxiety, I can say I the bard archetype is one that really appeals to me. I like the idea because one of the, one of the big things in D and D at least bards tend to be, as you, as you say, kind of Jack of all trades. They have lots of different skills and lots of different things you can do with them, which a can be intimidating, but as a, as a gamer, the way that I'm a gamer, that, that part is appealing. Um, but for me, the intimidating part is that they are often the face of the party, the charisma tank. I've heard people call them and you have, they're the ones, who do the talking and that doesn't work as well for me but I, I actually have played a bard in a campaign that that worked out really well but it took a little while for the group to find its sort of footing and often i wasn't the face of the party often someone else who actually his the, the, her character wasn't terribly uh sociable was the face which was kind of funny because it it, it created this weird dynamic where we'd often end up on kind of the wrong foot. But after a little while, then my character would start to speak up and then have, you know, this th- cooperation and, and understanding and things kind of build there. But it was, it was, it became an interesting dynamic that is part of why role-playing is a lot of fun. You have different group dynamics, but it's definitely kind of an intimidating thing for, for folk who aren't as good at those social skills and in those social situations. And yeah, it's interesting, like the bard could be the one who sort of smooths things over. Um, and, you know, I do like the the element of a character who inspires others in battle and kind of can do a number of things. So um, and, and can do it through music. I mean, too, like that's good. Yeah. Some of the abilities and the few times I played games like Darkest Dungeon, like that, like the, like the instrument is part of their weapon. It's, you know, it's Yeah. We, we have kind of bards as a big thing in D&D. We are coming up on a D&D world. We do not actually have bard as a creature type yet in Magic. Um, so we have characters that are named bards, but we do not actually have it as a creature type, which is something that is kind of fascinating. And we don't have a lot of them. I think there's three. Yeah, I think uh, what we were doing in research could have missed a couple, but... Uh... The three that, that came up uh, came up for me were Elvish Bard, uh, Jiraga Bard, and Yisan the Wandering Bard. So that's all in the name of the card rather than the creature type. Um, and that's a good place to kind of explore, like, what is a bard in magic, I suppose, too. Uh, so yeah. Elvish Bard, is uh, that was actually the very first... Um, art print that I ever bought uh, for Rob Alexander. I, I met him at um, what, back when we used to have like really great regional pre-releases. They would have artists at pre-releases. That was my yeah. things. Half um, the audience right now is having no clue what you're talking about with a regional pre-release. But yes, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I would say they used to be like GPs. Well, I, I didn't actually go to them. But the thing is, we don't have GPs anymore either. So that may be a frame <laughs> of reference that's also lost. But no, yeah, I mean, it basically, a lot of pre-releases weren't held in stores. They were held in like regions. So, you know, like 
there would be a limited number of them. I remember when I lived in in Massachusetts, like there was, I had to drive out a couple of hours outside of Boston to go. And it was, but there was like, it was kind of like a GP. There was a lot of people that got together and didn't, they would just run like pre-release uh, flights all day long. So I'm just clarifying because I realized that that is like a very <laughs> old concept in some ways. So yeah. but you, like you said, and there'd be artists there perhaps and like similar to you have like a signing or the ability. And like a GP, you got to meet the artists. Like it's really interesting to know like this, like a lot of Rob Alexander's cards, the character looks a lot like him and you see it big, you know, he's sort of got this horn he's blowing out in the woods and there's all these kind of monsters coming out of coming out of the background out of the mist out of the forest. And it's another one of my favorite bad sort of uh, mechanics and magic is these lure cards. So I really loved everything about that. Um, I should say, since I haven't already, my day job is that I'm an English teacher and um, I'm also a a songwriter and musician here in Minneapolis, too. So uh, I didn't. We were got so busy talking about concerts, I didn't bring that piece up. <laughs> you didn't say why we're even bothering having you on, other than we just yeah. like you as a human being. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so Albert Bard actually first showed up in Alliances, and so we got this name. It wasn't actually, um, you know, way back. Then. Way I mean, back. It was Susan were, Van Camp art um, those, for the initial. Those were sets that that that's the era where some of these sets were actually built out of people's D and D campaigns. Like, right. Like legends. A lot of the reasons we have just random legends was because that was the, the people who were designing the set based that off of D and D characters that they played or other, oh, it might not be just D and D, but, but tabletop RPGs. So for the ninth edition one that you're talking about, Eric, that you got the print of the, the flavor text is helplessly drawn in the bard's enemy quickly find there's more than song to be found. I just, I think it's really interesting to see kind of the, what is being used for the flavor text um, with yeah, some of these cards, which, which fits the mechanics, uh, which I think we missed explaining that for, for the Elvish bard, it's all creatures able to block Elvish bard do so, which um, as, as Eric said, is a lure effect. Cause that was a card in, in alpha that, is an enchantment that gave creatures that effect. And that is interesting tying bard, um, a bardic magic in magic to like a Pied Piper sort of thing, or maybe a little different. Cause I suppose the Pied Piper was, wasn't just like forcing them to attack the Pied Piper, but there's still sort of like the music is being used to manipulate and, and force creatures to go in a certain direction. And that Jack of all trades piece too, with, uh, whether he's got a sword or he's using his his instrument as a weapon of some sort or he's using music to completely <laughs> disarm his enemies all, all that really fits in there and there it's such an interesting like here's a moment before it all happens there's the music and this like sense of foreboding and that's the card frozen in time right yeah the art is amazing so we have that we have uh Jiragabard. Um, which is an elf rogue ally. Um, once again, flavor text on it is fantastic. It came out, what's interesting is, so it came out at the time when we had allies. So the very first time. This has grown in Zendikar to kind of be the concept of, we, we were replaced in some ways with the party in the most recent, an adventuring party. I bring this up because we did not actually get creature type bard, even though the parties in Zendikar basically follow very similar to what you would think of as a D&D adventuring party. But what we get in this one with this drug with the bard here is a rogue. 
which kind of that jack of all trade, the charisma piece you kind of see, but there is differences within D and D. And I think it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. But the uh, the flavor text is adventuring bards recite chanters epics, never ending tales that keep their comrades' minds alert to danger. So we're seeing kind of this idea that it, it the 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 key word that it gives is when an ally comes into play. So basically, when somebody in your party comes into play, it gives vigilance. So as you're saying, Eric, it's kind of that inspiration, this look of a bard in, in this um, iteration. Yep, you have that whole party of allies being inspired by song. Um, and like Hobbes pointed out, it's not a bard in the creature type. It's a rogue, um, which does give it some kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. And then another really famous bard who's actually a rogue uh, and shows up quite a bit in Commander's Yisan, the Wandering Bard, um, which uh, was from M15. And this was one of those cards that was designed by a game designer. So if you oh, ba- remember yeah. all the way back to M15, the plants mm-hmm. versus zombie guy, he had the plant zombie, and there was all, I think there was, um, yeah, there was uh, a hot whole soup. number. Hot Soup, our goblin card. Hot Soup was designed by somebody I remember. And I, I remember it because it's M15, so there were 15 designers outside of Magic who uh, made cards for that set. And uh, Isan was designed by one of the developers of a video game series called The Bard's Tale. And I hadn't played it, but I was wondering if either of you had. I haven't. I, I hear a lot about it as, as a quintessential like early game, but I have not played it myself. Yeah, same. I mean, I did not, but this was like Apple II and like Commander, I mean, Commodore 64 type. We're talking like basically one of the first probably real, you know, um, I, I think he, he was the founder of um, Interplay Productions, which was big early video game. And also they, they went on, I believe, uh, to create Fallout and Baldur's Gate too. Mm-hmm. And it looks like, They've remastered the games on Steam, so there's like a new playable version and definitely kind of that classic kind of of game that's out there. And the thing that I thought uh, you all would find interesting about it, it was described as sort of if Monty Python made an RPG video game. So So you're saying it's right up our alley. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean that, that I mean that that basically just describes goblins and magic. That's fine with me. Why don't we have a goblin bar jet? Oh wait, we're gonna get to that. Yeah. So Yisan is uh is really cool, and you know the mechanics here are that he has verse counters, um, and you're able to tutor up a creature. That's kind of another thing that shows up um, with music throughout. Um, magic is you're able to tutor um, different creatures with with an instrument and um, so Yisan's a really interesting card I, I know uh, Vorthos Mike has a Yisan deck that is very st- strong um, and it's kind of a linear deck because of all the tutoring but it's a very interesting concept and a very cool card 
And Yisan has a cool story. So do we want to talk about the story next or anything else on the card? Uh, before we get to the story real quick, uh, I want to say this is the entirety of named bards in cards. Now, we do have and we have to just make note of this because it was something that was kind of hoping to, to find out more of in um, in um, Jumpstart. We got a new printing of Goblin Lore. So the card that is our namesake. And, you know, Jumpstart is kind of the, the set that we just got, like, these theme stacks that you could kind of smash together and play. Um, on that, we got new flavor text for the card Goblin Lore. Um, so our namesake card said, basically, it's going through kind of these different tales of famous goblins. Now, this is interesting from a Vorthos perspective because we don't know where this book came from because it mentions King's Numsgill, which is one of our favorites from the uh, Foglio uh, art of Goblin King that basically talks about how you become Goblin King is to kill the King before you. It mentions the adventures of Tuk Tuk. So now it kind of brings up is Numsgill part of Zendikar or is this completely a book that has been interplanar? But the last part is it talks about the saga of Morpo the Bard. So a goblin named Morpo the Bard, who we have not seen yet. And this is kind of one of those, like, are they seeding something? Um, I was hoping that we were going to get Morpo in Zendikar, but there's a lot of belief that we are going to get Morpo, hopefully, in the D&D set. But we have a goblin bard that is named, at least, even though we don't know anything else. But there's not a lot so far in Magic, right? Um, like you said, we are going to talk about the story because even though there is limited, we do have a really good story. And I want to thank barbarians riddle on Twitter for at least bringing me to the story of the bard and the biologist. So do you want to take us through kind of some of the main plot here? And I will be linking the, the story itself. I'll link in the show notes. Uh, so um, we have Jalira um, and she is the biologist in the story and is kind of linked with some of that polymorph kind of magic of being able to, I think her big thing in the cards as well as in the story is uh, uh, she she turns some guards in the town square into frogs and polymorphs just is where that shows up. And uh, she knows Yisan in the, in the story. They're living on Chandelar, uh, kind of that generic setting. I, it, I, I'm not, well, it, I don't go as back as all of you guys. So it's always like, oh, it's generic to me, but it's, Kind of, I mean, it is, it, but yeah, maybe but there actually is, Chandelar is kind of, um, it's always like this thing that people want to return to Chandelar too, to, because they, to give it a little bit more shape. Um, there actually was a magic like game called Chandelar mm -hmm. that was, uh, I have never played it myself. Uh, yeah. Alex, did you by any chance ever play it? No, I, I haven't either. And it's, it's one of those. It's a video um, game from like 97. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate. Well, there's some unfortunate too. It's, it's a little bit like D and D several of their first settings were all like dragon Lance and gray, uh, gray Hawk and, and, and forgotten realms are all sort of the generic medieval fantasy. Now, people who played those are probably screaming right now but it's like there are definitely are unique features to all those and it's, it's similar to magic chandelier i'm sure has has its unique features and there's things going on there but it's it's there were a lot of worlds especially fantasy in general and this this is getting really far afield when you talk about like fiction and things but for a long time a lot of fantasy was was chasing tolkienic fantasy and and while people were figuring out kind of how to write their own fantasy 
it, the, the genre didn't cleave very far from its origins. So there is a lot of worlds in magic. There's a lot of worlds in D&D. There's a lot of all places where there's sort of fantasy storytelling that for, for a while didn't develop terribly far. And so, yeah, there's lots, there are definitely unique features to them, but on, on, on first glance on, on, on a large sweeping brush, there's a lot of similarities to, to other fantasy worlds we've seen. It's taken time to sort of build those storytelling chops and build that experience and learn as a genre, how to build different and varied worlds that are much more different and much more varied. And so that's where, especially having the benefit of that view now, where we have these varied worlds and things, we look back and say, oh, well, Chandelier is kind of just generic. And it's like, it it is, but that doesn't mean that there isn't also things done beneath the surface that you can really dig into, or not even beneath the surface that are there. They're just, you don't necessarily see them right away. Well, I think some of the, the, the like M15 and some of the ideas with the core sets was to kind of try to, in some ways, like this story in particular, to give a little bit more shape to that. Yeah. I mean, so, and, and so, to be honest, that's part of why, that was part of the strength of Chandelier that they were using for the core sets for a while, where they're like, there's definitely some things there and we want to develop stuff with Chandelier. So we're doing these core sets, but at the same time, we also want to have those um, familiar handholds that people who are familiar with fantasy will, will know and recognize mm-hmm. so that they can, it makes they don't have to onboard. Would... It's not yeah. as much work to onboard into this world. And that was the whole point of the core sets is it was supposed to help uh, new players onboard into the game faster. And now we've used, I mean, as I said, we've, it's moved away from that. And, and M15 was, I think, part of starting to really be that you wanted to kind of have, uh, you know, we didn't want uh, card names that strayed far from um, a world setting. Like they, they, they went with the core sets. It used to be that you could have, re, it was reprints. And so you would get reprints from like settings that were, that made no sense if you were to look at the card name being in the world. But for, for, Basically, just to say, Chandelar is kind of a big setting, and we do get the story here with Yasan. Yeah, perfectly, uh, perfectly said, uh, both you and Alex, kind of fleshing out why it's both generic and not. That's so very well said. Uh, so, in this story, um, you have um, Yasan and Jalira sort of meeting in this town square, and there's this adventurer who's seen something out in the wilds that has made him sort of lose his mind. Uh, but he's got a lot of uh, expensive jewelry on him. And so they both go into their roguelike uh, ways and trying to act like they're befriending him, trying to act like they're comforting him, and they're just basically robbing him blind. Uh, you know, the the guard shows up on their horse horses, and it looks like these two are about to be arrested. Jalira turns them all into frogs because that's what a polymorphous can do and they escape um when they escape they kind of get they i think they come across a book from one of the things that they had stolen and in this book they're they're talking about uh, they discover that there are slivers out in the wild so m15 must have been the sliver returned to slivers as well and uh, they kind of get it in their head, like a lot of people have died um, adventuring out here and <laughs> the slivers have probably killed a lot of people and there's all kinds of gold to be found. So let's go and get that gold. 
and um, that's, that's my favorite kind of adventure. <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, there's, I mean, there's gold. I mean, that's you know the, the traditional adventure motivation. And they people do something might be dying really here. interesting. Let's go get their gold. They do something uh, really interesting. The author uh, Matt uh, Kaninkle, possibly, um, does something really interesting with that. So we get some really kind of cool details um, that. Uh, Yisan has a lyre is his instrument of choice, and it has a name, a, a tallness, which I wasn't able to find sort of an origin to that. And all over his clothing, he's got this like um, chitin from albino insects, and it's on his clothing and it's on his instrument. So like there's this insect instrument bard tie that's really kind of cool there. Um, and as the two of them are walking out there, there's some real subtle hints that Yisan has had Jalira under his musical spell. And so we see sort of how bardic magic works in this story where she says, you know, you, you're humming this song again. The last time I was around you, I had that song stuck in my head for weeks. And he kind of ignores it. And as a, as a reader, we might ignore it, but we're really focused on like, how does bardic magic work? And uh, that seems like one of the hints that Jalira is maybe under some control that she's not aware of. Um, another just offhand, Talrand is kind of a pretty famous character because of EDH. Uh, he gets mentioned very briefly and they say, well, he's not really a good friend of us. Between the two of us, we've stolen, we <laughs> swindled him out of 20 bars of gold, a deed to a lighthouse and a marriage. <laughs> yeah. The marriage is the part that I love about this. Yeah. Like, that's okay. so great. Yeah. Um, real, before we move too much further, I wanted to highlight real quick too, just because I think it's cool when we get to the music discussion, um, a named instrument is kind of a, a concept that I think is very fascinating. Like it even reminds me of, um, so like Willie Nelson has this guitar that if you ever just, if you can just go Google Willie Nelson's guitar, it is this beat up guitar. It's like signed by tons of um, uh, like people that he's played with Um and, and, you know, you kind of say it, it, they, he gives it a like name, it, it like has a name to it trigger. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I, I, I think of this, especially when we get to the, 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 the country music, um, more of like the outlaw country, the people that are kind of telling stories through music, that kind of name of an instrument or something that they're associated with that has to do with it. So I thought that the fact that his instrument, like you said, I don't know the origin, but the fact that his instrument has a name was very interesting to me. It is. It, it caught my eye. Willie Nelson's a great example of that. Um, and that guitar has been rebuilt because uh, just being the road warrior that Willie Nelson is, it, he's worn holes through it uh, multiple times. Mm -hmm. So they have to keep <laughs> rebuilding trigger. There's some um, great another, images of like the hole in the guitar. And it just, it's, it's I, like, I love it. It just, it's amazing. Yeah. Another really famous named guitar, and this is you're in my wheelhouse now, so um, is BB King's uh, big red uh, Gibson that's named Lucille. Oh and, yes, uh, that's right. Great story on that. Um, there was he was playing at a club, and a fight broke out, and then a fire broke out, and he ran out, and he ran in to get his guitar, and nearly died. It was pretty dangerous to do it. And it turned out that the woman that the two men were fighting about in the first place was named Lucille. 
So he named his guitar Lucille. So he would remember never to do something so stupid ever again. I, uh, yeah. I, I, it's the story that, I mean, even the, just then, like you said, there's, there's the stories behind the naming and we, we don't get that here, but we know that there is one. And I think that it is something that I associate with music. A lot of times is there, there's a story or a reason behind it. Yeah. I really wanted to know that. Like I spent some time, like what, what <laughs> I, 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 I kind of was a detail that, that. I, I, yeah, I, I really wanted to know that. So, you know, th these two kind of go out on the uh, on the hunt for sliver treasure. And when they get there, it's kind of interesting. They they quickly realize that uh, Yisan's music is not going to be of too much help because the, the sound of the slivers, this hum and thrum of the slivers is so loud that they're not going to be able to hear his instrument. So Jalira gets this look in her eye and uh, Yisan doesn't like her plan too much, but he turn she turns the both of them into slivers. <laughs> oh. And what was really cool, like very inventive from a storytelling perspective is they were making their way from the outer edge of the slivers. It was sort of like a sliver mosh pit. If you guys are from the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are, are mosh pits not a thing anymore? Uh, they're not right now. Maybe they'll come back someday. Um, and they're working their way from outer edge. And as they're going through, it's like they sprouted wings. And it was like they just had flown all their lives. And suddenly they had venom. And they're picking up all these abilities, uh, like what you saw on the cards, uh, the kind of mechanics represented. So that was pretty neat. Uh, when they get to the very inside, and I think M15 was Sliver Hive Lord was the big sliver queen type character there um and they jalira loses control of her mind enough that they drop the, the spell drops and they're exposed to be humans and not slivers after all and um slivers don't seem extremely dangerous because the two of them just sort of grab whatever treasure they can and slowly walk back out <laughs> and uh where the story kind of gets interesting <laughs> again. There's <laughs> not a Which big is, battle. I don't know. Like, and I think it's funny because we're talking slivers here. Like the thing that we most associate with this is like giant hive that's going to just like tear you apart with all their abilities and they just kind of wander out. Like, uh, uh, well, and, and and that's the thing where you're you're thinking about gameplay versus like story in world and things. And so that's I think it's always interesting to think about, but it, that it, there is a difference th there between how things would behave in the actual world and the fact that magic is always about combat because it's us trying to, well, not always beat the other person to death with creatures, but you're trying to defeat your opponents somehow. So there's a competitiveness and a, a more uh, that exists that, doesn't always necessarily exist all the time in the fabric of the world itself. You say that as if 2020 didn't just happen. I mean, yeah, but just because 2020 was happening and there, there were definitely people doing things, keep in mind, not everybody was doing that all the time everywhere. Where in magic, like the game itself, we're always representing those moments in the game. There are other, everybody is doing something else at some point in time. And for me, it was really interesting because that was sort of like the very first multiplayer magic group I had. Uh, there was a, a guy who had built slivers, the early version of slivers, and it was a brutal deck. And 
people didn't run a lot of Wrath of Gods because they were probably rare and expensive and board wipes weren't a thing in super casual groups. And he would sort of just stomp everybody every time for a while there. <laughs> and uh, so slivers always sort of have this uh, very scary feeling for me that maybe not everybody has. Well, and, uh, and the- I think that what's interesting is that brings us to kind of how the story concludes is yeah. basically Yisan decides to like stay and his reason for staying, it's kind of cool. He kind of sits down. He says, I think I'm going to stay here for a while. Yisan replied, his head torn towards the cave. He picked up Talumnus. I want to study them a little more. Their music is fascinating. You can take all of the treasure. And Jilar made eye contact with them. And she said, okay, I guess if you trust me, I'll keep the gold. And, And he didn't seem to hear her. He just stared, listening to like strumming his harp. Uh, to mimic the sounds of what the slivers were. And he goes, that works. I'll catch up with you. He sat down to watch the slivers hanging from the rocks and strummed his, I do not know how to pronounce that word. I've never known how to pronounce it. Carapice. Oh. His, his leer. Um, yeah. But so he, um, it was very interesting. He basically, she, it's basically like she said she knew what she needed to know about him. He did not. Um, and it's he decides to basically stay with the slivers because of the music that they are making. Um, and, and you know, there, I know in the notes, Eric, you had said, is there kind of a mind control? Is it just, is, is he hoping to learn the ability giving songs? I mean, but that idea maybe that music and songs in general have power. Um, so that's where we've been so far story-wise. We'll kind of, before we jump into where we may be heading, um, I do want to kind of hit on a little bit with bards and literature, because I think that there is going to be some instrument or some elements of that that is coming with where we think the story may be headed and where it has been a little bit within Kaldheim. Yeah. Um, that, that ending is just a real doozy on that story too. Like, um, uh, the, where uh, Jaleer has learned everything she has to know. And we're left in this like moment of like, is he going to get sucked into like the slivers? Is he going to emerge this extremely powerful bard with sliver stuff? And again, that whole idea of like, she might be under some of his control because he completely trusts her. Or is he just so enthralled with the, like music is dangerous from both the, the learner and the player. And it's, <laughs> it's really powerful stuff from that perspective. Right. Um, yeah, so from a literature perspective, um, Bard, probably the most common way that it gets used other than some of these fantasy settings is in referring to, uh, William Shakespeare, uh, is commonly referred to as the Bard. And it's kind of come to be a word that's, uh, means highly respected poet, um, or celebrated poet, but, uh, Probably more accurately, it's um, kind of a traveling entertainer, one of the lower classes of entertainers, storytelling, musician, who's there to entertain. Um, This is where we kind of get epic poetry from in in different cultures, as well as that sort of uh, these traveling bards are creating and basically doing what we would call cover songs, you know, uh, something like Beowulf in Scandinavia or something like the Odyssey in ancient Greece would have been something that people would have performed and gone from town to town. And that's you kind of made your, your living from performing these stories. 
that were also songs. Like that's a really kind of key thing to keep in mind here is um, that the stories were told through songs. So uh, in old English, uh, they were called bards. In Scandinavia, they were called skalds, which we see that word showing up in Kaldheim. Um, and, or skalds in Old English and Scandinavia, we have scops. So, and bards are kind of three interrelated words. And I think that what's interesting, as you mentioned, is that it, this, I think of it the, the itinerant traveler, because also the way these, you know, like how people become famous as bards in my, what I kind of picture is, it's not, it's like the stories are known stories that they are telling like the bard's ability is to tell that story in a way that entertains or or like putting their spin on it or what they're doing with it. It's their ability with a story that is already kind of known and has been passed on. I mean, you think of like people call for the bard to to tell the tale of whatever it is. It's a tale that is known, but it's how this bard is going to tell it. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the, the bards are traveling and out they're out there living adventures and they're seeing a lot more of a world than uh, someone who is working a field would have seen, right? So they're also probably telling some of their own stories. A really famous example of this kind of character is we see a scop in Beowulf. When Beowulf defeats Grendel, he comes in and performs a song. And you get this whole idea of like, you know, they're not only there to entertain, but they're there to kind of preserve history or myth or legend and, and kind of spin that forward. It's really fun. Um, I linked in the, I linked in, in the notes um, a video that I used to show students when I taught Beowulf in, in British lit- literature many years ago. That's pretty interesting. If you're trying to get your head around like what a bard or scop or a scald maybe would have done. Uh, there's a guy named Benjamin Bagby and he, he built his own lyre he learned um, sort of this old English that Beowulf was in, and he performs it. He sings it. It's a dramatic reading. He's playing this lyre, this harp. He's using it as a weapon. It's super cool, uh, even though you really can't understand anything of what he's what he's saying. <laughs> um, but it really questioning my uh, knowledge of old English here. <laughs> I'm questioning my. I said I can't understand anything that he's saying. Right. So. Um, that was super cool. And you see this in all kinds of cultures uh, around the world. Uh, others that we're probably familiar with would be the Iliad and the Odyssey um, were performed hundreds of years before they were finally written down as well. That oral tradition is what we're talking about with, with the bards. Um, and then, you know, all the way up to recent history, I think we tend to really sort of the scientific division mind we try to say, this is a story, this is a song, um, this is a musical, this is theater, and we try to like really categorize everything. And you even see this with genres of music and micro-genres of music today, right? Um, but what we kind of have coming out of sort of this impulse today would be story songs. And they were especially big, probably um, from the 60s, uh, maybe through the nineties and they've kind of fallen off a little bit, but songs that really, really kind of tell a story from like Chuck Berry stuff, which I really loved as a kid, uh, boy named Sue, which was written by Shel Silverstein. 
Um, I love that nugget of information. Absolutely. I love Shell Silverstein nuggets. In case you don't know, so Shell Silverstein, as people probably know from like where the sidewalk ends, uh, also used to do comics for Playboy. Mm-hmm. So like it's just a fascinating thing to think of this like the person that I you know grew up with as a child like storyteller um, did that and then also wrote Boy Named Sue by that was performed by Johnny Cash is how we know it. Mm-hmm. And both of those people, both Shel Silverstein and Johnny Cash, would be perfect examples. I think of of modern day bards telling stories and telling adventures in different formats, right? Uh, Cats in the Cradle, Harry Chapin, Ugly Kid Joe covered it uh, when. Mm-hmm. High school, Hobbs and I, <laughs> Tracy Chapman. One of my favorite ones of all time. I'm a big Tom Petty fan. Into the Great Wide Open is a story about a musician. Um, and so that's kind of something fun to look for out in the real world is, you know, are, are some of our favorite songs painting a picture for us with words? Are they telling stories with us with words? Um, because yeah. there are so many things that songs can do. And I'm not, you know, deep into into too much music. I'm not familiar with too uh, too many different bands, but the the one that I brought up earlier, Rush was is is a band that I I got into fairly deep, you know, from my dad and stuff like they were playing in the 70s, but they had a career all the way through. So 40 years is is and then it's about when they stopped uh, touring, but especially in their early career they had a lot of 15, 20, 25 minute epic songs that were telling stories. I mean, they literally, one of their first albums, they have a song called The Necromancer, a fantasy song about a necromancer. This is an area that that I I know that some people that listen to a lot of epic metal or epic fantasy music that has been done into. I know I had friends that my first EDH group used to play it a ton. So it's it's like you look for the the places for it where it does still show up where it is really storytelling. I grew up with the ballads. I grew up with a lot of country, and this is where I always kind of like to me music goes to storytelling because I think of things like like I said Willie Nelson, Marty Robbins, who is like who sings the song El Paso is probably the most famous, but he's telling the story of a of a gunfighter, um, Big Iron, um, and these are stories that too. There have been covers, uh, even so Mike Ness, who is the lead singer of Social Distortion, has a whole thing where he basically covers old country music. Um, and you start seeing the, the retellings of it that you can see. But a lot of that ballad music, The Gambler by Kenny Rogers, is telling these stories. It's, it, it follows kind of a narrative format. It, it brings us through. So to me, I think of music in this way a lot because this is kind of some of the music that I I really identified with like the country when I think country, that's what I think of. I think of, uh, you know, the gunfighter songs. I think of kind of this outlaw country that really was telling a story or passing something on. And I think country is one of the areas where that really still happens today. Um, You know, certain nationalities, I think also, I think particularly people in the Celtic tradition, um, Donovan is a singer who I've heard interviews with him really talk about, you know, sunshine, sunshine, Superman, uh, kind of a sixties guy. Um, he really talked about the importance of ballads. Um, and then you kind of mentioned in there, some, some of the metal, like Led Zeppelin is a band that's sort of really tied in with some of this Tolkien stuff and epic, epic poetry as well. 
Well, and then, I mean, anyone, um, you know, like the immigrant song is the one that I think because yeah. <laughs> Thor, but I mean, but people know it because it is about Valhalla. It is about, I mean, that's why we, I made a lot of jokes about why did it not just show up in the Kaldheim trailer? Um, and I think somebody even recut the Kaldheim trailer with it. Yeah. Uh, I put that up and Bradley Rose actually did it. I, I, nice. I, I said, someone please do this. And Bradley, and it's awesome. Um, and then, uh, Pink Floyd, anyone who's doing like a concept album, Smashing Pumpkins did concept albums. Uh, Weezer and Pinkerton, one of my Weezer favorites. and Pinkerton, one I mean, of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah, this is an album, you know, like people don't think of Weezer. I mean, people do, but, it, 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 you know, Pinkerton is like their second album, right? Coming off of this like surf rock music that they like, I mean, once again, we're going back to Eric and I's high school, which is why I think there's a lot of this overlap here. You know, they, they they had this like surf rock sound that was very new. They had these cool music videos. And then they dropped Pinkerton, which is a Madam Butterfly inspired album. You're seeing how they're taking a, uh, well, an opera and bringing it into a concept album where they're telling story through song. And, you know, Rush also has, was somebody that, you know, is Alex has been talking about. Like it has these albums, this concept of an album versus a song even was basically a collection of songs that told a story or told a theme. And that's our show for today. You can find the host on Twitter. Hotsku can be found at Hotsku, and Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler. Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmokes, the cast can be found at patreon.com slash goblinworldpod. Opening and closing music by Vindergotten, who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten or online at vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>